Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can check out all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, author Mark Yarm joins Nate to discuss his classic, Everybody Loves Our Town, an oral history of grunge. Mark and Nate will talk about the genre's birth in tiny Seattle clubs, its rise to the pinnacle of pop success, and the ruin it left in its wake. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Mark Yarm. No connection to Mark Arm of Mudhoney. Mark Yarm is the author of Everybody Loves Our Town, An Oral History of Grunge. Mark, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Nathan. Yeah, this is a treat. This is a book I uh, devoured when it came out and uh, have read a couple times since, so really excited to have you on, although it's a pretty depressing one. There's a lot of death and destruction in this story. There, there is, there is quite a bit. As uh, well, that's a bit of a spoiler alert. But I mean, <laughs> people, people probably know what happened to a lot of the the, the main players: uh, Kurt Cobain, Wayne Staley, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they did not meet uh, pleasant ends. So yeah, there, there. It does, and of course, as uh, grunge falls out of vogue. Everybody gets dropped from their major label deals. So, yeah, it is definitely uh, a bit gloomy at the end, we'll say. Yeah, but which is appropriate because grunge from the beginning was heavy, gloomy, dark music. And Seattle is where it came from. How much of the mood of grunge do you ascribe to the, the setting? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people talk about how... Uh, you know, obviously Seattle is a dark, gloomy, rainy place, and a lot of people ascribe the sound to that in an emotional way. It also, uh, sometimes when it's, you know, raining out and, and uh, you know, there's nothing better to do than be in your uh, garage or practice space banging out some new music. So, um, it, it, you know, people, anecdotally, people say that it had an effect, so um, I'm, I tend to believe them. And you you start the book. I mean, this is a big book, 
And you start pretty early, well, well before uh, you know the explosion into the popular consciousness. Why did you pick to start with the U-Men and Malfunction and Green River in the early days of the Seattle scene? Why, why is that a logical start? Um, well, I started with uh, this compilation called Deep Six, which came out on CZ Records. And it's kind of looked upon as the beginnings of grunge. You've got bands like the U-Men, who were kind of the forebears of the scene, the, the punk rockers who influenced a lot of these bands. You've got uh, Soundgarden, who we all know today. Uh, you've got Malfunction, which featured Andy Wood, who later, later went on to Mother Love Bone. You've got Green River, which ultimately split up between uh, Pearl Jam and Mud Honey. Um, and you've got Skin Yard, uh, which was uh, another big band of the time. And I'm which featured one- Jack and Dino, the producer of. Nirvana's Bleach and Mudhoney's first album and so many things. And also uh, the owner of CZ Records, although not yeah. the founder. Uh, yes, yes, of course. And um, finally, of course, lest I forget the Melvins, who are still going strong all these years later. So, um, you know, those those were kind of the, the six bands I wanted to begin with. And um, and uh, it seemed appropriate to start with the U-Men because they were the ones who were a little bit older and influenced a lot of these other bands quite heavily. Uh, they never really got their due in the popular consciousness. So uh, I feel like I was doing a good service to, to report on them. And the book actually opens with this very, well, at least in Seattle, infamous um, event where... Uh, they were playing at the Mural Amphitheater in Seattle, which is a venue that, at least at the time, had a moat of water around the stage. And at a certain point, they were, the U-Men were kind of pranksters, and at a certain point in the um, in the show, the, the roadies came out, uh, like, doused the... The, the moat and kerosene and then the lead singer John Bickley comes comes out with a torch doing this kind of uh, native style dance and then like drops the torch into the into the uh, moat and you know this this uh, huge fireball well it depends who you're asking some people say it was a small fireball some people say it was like a huge 50 foot fireball so there's a bit of a Rashomon thing going on where you know what actually happened but um, there are actually pictures of it in the book you can see so it, it, it looked quite impressive and uh, then they of course they had to hightail it out of there because what they did was presumably highly illegal so um, it's kind of like this uh, Michael Bay sort of opening to the book, you know, big explosion, a big uh, ball of flame opening the thing. And and I think that sort of um, is a good symbol of where the Seattle scene was at the time. This The Seattle scene was a subset of the punk underground that Mike Lazarat and others have chronicled where bands like Black Flag and the Butthole Surfers and Big Black are dominating it nationally, although it's an underground scene, but, you know, some bands are selling tens, 20,000, up to 100,000 records by the end of the 80s in some cases. And uh, Seattle was pretty remote. I mean, occasionally bigger bands would tour through there, but for the most part, these kids were on their own on kind of this island, Portland and Seattle, or hours and hours and hours. Like, I think Mark Arm says at some point that he's 
32 miles from Minnesota, Minneapolis, and 14 hours from San Francisco. So a lot of times bands just didn't come up there. So the kids had to make their own fun. What were some of the unique traits of that Seattle scene that distinguished it from the rest of the country's underground? Well, you named a big one right there. There's the sort of fact that all these uh, major bands would skip them. So again, as you said, they had to make their own fun. I mean, uh, there, there was the weather uh, and the the tendency. Also, it was, it was super insular. So, I mean, there were, there were only a couple hundred people involved in this scene. So there was a lot of cross-pollination. Uh, it was like a little germ culture, I think Jack and Dino compared it to something along that line. So basically, you know, one band would pick, uh, pick up something, you know, the drop detuning, and then the, then the other bands would pick it up. And uh, it would sort of spread in that way. And also, you, you know, you have to remember this is way, way pre-internet. So there was no... There was nobody releasing their songs as soon as they were done. They, you know, they had they really workshopped them and played them live, and and uh, there was quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of work that went into each song before it actually got into its finished form. It wasn't just uh, you know there there was no outside internet to 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 uh, there was no outside internet to put posted on the next day after your practice so you know these things tend to get honed and and perfected so mark it was notable from the minute that deep six compilation dropped and that was a very obscure compilation um but i i randomly heard it pretty early on and i was pretty surprised at the time by how metal it was was there something about seattle that made the the punk rockers especially open to metal influences. I mean, you had bands like Black Flag with My War that were getting into the slow and heavy stuff, but that was almost a sort of nose-thumbing at the at the skinhead, hardcore, loud, fast rules, you know, mafia on the scene, and not something that was popularly embraced around the country for the most part, except in Seattle. What was it about the Seattle scene that, that was so friendly to metal? I'm not sure exactly why they were so friendly to metal, but they certainly were. I mean, like the guys, Jeff and Stone, who, who were in um, Green River, who ultimately went on to be in Pearl Jam, they were really into bands like Aerosmith and Venom and things like that. And, you know, then there were people in that band, Mark Arm, the singer, uh, who was probably more punk rock oriented. So it was this nice fusion between the two. Um, I think there were just a whole bunch of it was a kind of a gumbo stew of, of influences up there. And um, I'm not sure why geographically that was the case, but uh, it was. And, and that combination of metal and punk really birthed grunge. And that was a subject of some controversy from the very beginning. I mean, you talk about the the band Green River, which originally featured both of Mudhoney's guitarists. Mark Arm was just singing, but Steve Turner was on guitar along with Stone Gossard, who later went on to Mother Love Bone and Pearl Jam, as you mentioned. But Steve Turner couldn't handle the metal and quit pretty early on after their first EP on Homestead Records. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were, there were a lot of people who were, were definitely not into metal. And, uh, you know, Steve Turner being one of them. And, uh, I mean, ultimately, that's kind of what led to the dissolution of, of Green River was, was that kind of creative tension between 
you know, this, the, what, what essentially was the Pearl Jam side and, and the Mud Honey side. Um, you know, they, those guys, uh, Stone and Jeff in the band, really admired. They were playing with uh, Jane's Addiction, who were pretty big at the time, and they really admired that band. And Mark Arm thought they were horrible. So uh, that was kind of, you know, there, there was also this, this, this push and pull between the desire to be professional which some people in that band wanted to be and the desire to keep it punk rock. So that was a, a, a big tension within that band in particular. But generally in the Seattle scene, the, you know, is kind of looked down upon to, to want to succeed. Although secretly or not so secretly, a lot of people really did want to succeed. And one pair of characters we should introduce at this point are the Jonathan Poneman and Bruce Pavitt, the founders of Sub Pop Records. And and um, which one of those guys actually started Sub Pop as a fanzine? Yeah, um, that, that would be Bruce. He um, started it as a fanzine way back in Olympia, probably late, like, like 79 or so. So that's really where the origins of, of sub pop come from um you know ultimately years later he hooks up with uh jonathan poneman and you know he's more the businessman wheeler dealer type and they you know they want to put a sound garden single so you know they're they're a real they were a real uh pair of characters and and the the press in particular was quite enamored of them and pavitt's I, I thought it was interesting that you started Pavitt's story in Olympia because Olympia becomes sort of a major sub-character in the Seattle grunge story. I mean, you, you've got Pavitt coming out of there, and Kurt Cobain also spent quite a bit of time in Olympia. And then the Riot Girl movement started there, which had um, you know bands that you talk about later on, like Seven Year Bitch and the Gits, were were not necessarily affiliated with that, but associated with it in a lot of people's minds. And so what was it about the blend of Olympia? What did the Olympia scene bring into the Seattle scene? Well, I mean, there was the influence of K Records, uh, Calvin Johnson, who I talked to for the book. Um, you know, he and Bruce Pavitt were good friends. Um, you know, Kurt Cobain was a big fan of the K Records sound. He had famously had a K Records um tattoo on him as you mentioned uh some of the riot girl band you know uh, kathleen hannah and, and bikini kill from were from there and and uh kirk cobain uh dated toby vale from that band and and uh was friends with kathleen hannah so there were a lot of there were a lot of overlapping interweaving and obviously the bands were constantly going back and forth touring between these places because they were relatively close by so there was a lot of uh uh, influence the, the cities kind of feeding off of each other. And let's hear a little bit of music. I wanted to start with the U Men since you uh, spent so much time on the New Guinea book. And this is a song, Digging a Hole. Ready to 
And that was the U-Man with Digging a Hole. And, and the U-Man, I mean, I kind of picked it deceptively. That's a pretty grungy song for the U-Man. But, but in a lot of ways, they were more of a post-punk, new wave, PIL-influenced sort of band. Talk about their career arc, because this was a band that put out records that toured nationally, uh, but didn't make much of an impact. But in Seattle, they were pretty big. Yeah, in Seattle, at least in the underground Seattle, they were the, the big band, the big band. They were you know, kind of the best-looking, uh, best uh, sort of most hyped band in Seattle at the time. Um, I mean, they were a little bit too early, A, and B. The guys in the band really didn't want what they saw going on at Sub Pop all the uh you know all the hype and all the bands exploding um you know they were given opportunities to reform and never did so uh yeah they were they were kind of like the big deal band that, and terribly influential for uh all these other bands and uh, sub pop just reissued uh, a year or two ago their uh basically their whole catalog on and, and and so you can you can get that now. I advise picking that up. Yeah, it's well worth hearing. But I think it's important to to emphasize that at this point in the scene, I mean, this is pretty small scene. This is a few dozen people at most. A big show would be a half filled theater, right? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, at a certain point. I mean, there were, there were clubs like the Metropolis that would uh, that was a very key one where all these bands, sort of a lot of these bands at least got the, their start. Um, but yeah, I mean, the U-Man would famously play um, shows in the, in the sort of weird venues like this place called the Meat Lockers, which was a exactly what it sounds like, a converted Meat Lockers. And they would have the... Uh, they would have the booze in the in the freight elevator. So when the cops came, they would uh, you know close the freight elevator doors, put it up, uh, you know, uh, close it up, and then you know what booze when the cops came in, they'd be like, "What booze? We don't have any booze." So um, you know, there it was it was a very DIY sort of uh, approach. And it wasn't like there there wasn't a feel of incipient. This is about to explode because you had you know bands like the Melvins pull up and, and move to San Francisco. Like they were they obviously didn't see Seattle as a place to start your career. Not that the Melvins were especially careerists, but uh they were ambitious. They did want to be heard. And as we've seen, they've toured and recorded relentlessly the whole 30 years of this, you know, from from the beginnings of the story to the present day. Why do you think right. the Melvins moved and and tell us about uh how they changed their personnel in that shift. Uh, well, the Melvins moved because I think, uh, if I recall correctly, they were getting sick of, of the scene and it was a good opportunity. And at that time, uh, they, well, basically also they wanted to get rid of, uh, Matt Lucan, who was, uh, their bassist at the time and who they still to this day seem to have, uh, be feuding with. Um, he, he later became the bassist for Mud Honey. So, and then, um, they got uh, Lori Black, who was uh, Shirley Temple Black's daughter. She became the bassist, and they and then they moved out to to San Francisco. So it was kind of a, a shady move on Melvin's part. I think maybe a little bit passive aggressive in getting rid of Matt Lucan by moving. But I think they were also probably, you know, done with the scene. And who wouldn't want to move to San Francisco? 
yeah, at the time it was actually livable. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, and the whole bit was, I'm glad you brought up Shirley Temple Black, because, you know, Lori Black being Shirley Temple's daughter was the sort of thing that would be rumored around and whispered around, uh, you know, sort of the way that, like, you know, there would be, there was a senator son in the D.C., hardcore scene or you know rumors that eddie monster was involved in and in la bands and stuff so there was always this sort of is this true you know is this is this too weird to be a part of the melvin's mystique but around this time like you mentioned the melvin's dump matt lucan this is at the same time when mark arm finally quits green river and so you get mud honey formed and they instantly become sort of the flagship band on the scene tell us about touch me i'm sick and the launch of sub pop and and but honey's timing. Well, I mean, touch me. I'm sick is, is still remains probably the, the ultimate grunge song. I think, I mean, if you, if you listen to, I don't know how long it is, three minutes, four minutes, it's just like perfect distillation of grunge with the guitars and the howled vocals. And it's, it's just, it's just a perfect song. And, you know, that actually that was uh, uh, on, a, you know, a split single. They thought the, the, the song on the other side would be the, the successful one. So somehow they didn't hear it. But, uh, yeah, they quickly became like the sort of, as you mentioned, flagship band. The funny thing is that, you know, Nirvana was never considered to be, or at least at that time, wasn't considered. To, they were like the, the little brother band to, to mud honey they were nobody ever thought that they would be the successful one if anyone coming out of uh, seattle would be successful it was going to be mud honey and tell us a little bit about sub pop's pretty brilliant marketing ploy of sending mud honey to the uk and the way they involved uh journalist everett true into into the hype right well they they actually uh, you know, they flew Everett True over to the U.S. to uh, to investigate this burgeoning scene, and they kind of liquored him up. And you know, he was. In the, I mean, I talked to Everett True in in, uh, in my book, and basically, they kind of like even fed him, you know, lines to say in the article. He, he he's a little embarrassed about that now, but so the journalistic ethics may not have been there right at the time, yeah. but basically what they were doing was kind of using, because these bands weren't that big in the U S they were using the, the, the technique of selling it to the British, you know, there was a really vibrant British press and this was for melody maker. And they did the spread on, uh, the bands of Seattle and, um, and then they did a, a later they did a feature on Mud Honey, so uh, yeah. And Evertrue was a real hype master, and basically sold it to the British. And you know, once something becomes exciting overseas, you know that uh, in, increase their stock uh, in the U.S. Yeah, and in the context, I mean, the the U.S. and U.K. undergrounds had bifurcated in the early '80s. I mean, punk was a mass phenomenon in the in England in the '70s in a way it was not here. And then, you know, in the early '80s, groups like REM and and other guitar-based bands just never cut it in in U.K., which was into synthesizers and and the new romantic scene at the time. So when Mudhoney exploded uh, in Britain. It was the first time Britain had paid attention to, to underground American bands a long time. And I remember it had a huge impact on the kind of media attention. Suddenly, sub pop was a big deal in the American underground. And because, and, you know, every American 
indie kid was reading uh, all the British press I could get their hands on. And so, you know, it was a brilliant ploy. But meanwhile, at the same time, there's another set of bands that are coalescing around a woman named Susan Silver. She was the wife of Chris Cornell of Soundgarden, but she also managed uh, Alice in Chains and Mother Lovebone. Tell us a little about Susan Silver and how she came to be such a player in the scene. Um, yeah, Susan was, I mean, she was really a, a power broker. In, in my book, somebody says if it hadn't been for the guys from Sub, Sub Pop and for Susan Silver, this whole thing might not have happened. I mean, at one point, she, you know, she began, she was the, actually the U-Men's uh, manager. So just kind of something I think she sort of fell into. But um, yeah, she was definitely a power broker behind the scenes. Obviously, she ultimately ended up dating and then uh, marrying and then divorcing Chris Cornell. So, um, but, you know, she was, she was a real, um, you know, I think she was a, a figure that was, was to be somewhat feared in the, in the scene as well. Although very, a very, very kind person, but also very, could be very uh, fearsome when she needed to be. And her group's, she was associated with the sort of metal side or the more professionalist, ambitious side of, of the scene. I mean, um, the guys in Green River, Stone Gossard and Jeff Amint, they immediately go out and recruit Andrew Wood away from Malfunction, which Malfunction was a band that was playing in the punk scene, punk underground, but always had the sort of delusions of grandeur of a sort, like the 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 persona that Andy Wood pushed out was that, you know, he's this rock god. And it was funny while he's playing these tiny shithole clubs to small audiences, but then when he aligns with Gossard and Amit and Susan Silver, and then they signed a polygram, suddenly it's it's for real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they went on a tour with the Colts and and uh and they were kind of hyped to be the next big thing and and perhaps perhaps they could have been i mean obviously what this is leading to is is andy wood uh ends up ODing unfortunately and 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 dying and he you know never gets a chance basically you know very shortly a few months before their their debut album comes out so we'll never know you know what what could have been but they were certainly hyped to be a big deal band and they weren't self-consciously i mean they were not flying a grunge flag they didn't even know what grunge you know grunge hadn't been codified at that point and and going back and listening to mother love bone i mean and at the time i remember that ep that they put out while he was still alive the shine ep and it was on its own label but it was it was you know one of those sort of faux indie labels they created uh, right. i think it was star dog if they call it, if i remember right Correct. um but you know there was definitely this aura of hype around him and people knew of green river and knew that this was something sort of out of the punk scene, but it really sounded metal at the time. And you go back and it, it sounds like classic rock, you know, and, and it's a good album, but it's nothing like touch me. I'm sick. And at the same time, Soundgarden is coming out and they also sign a major label and do one of these, you know, they actually did a deal with a, an album on SST while they were already, after they'd already signed with A&M. Can you, Talk us through those machinations a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, 
basically, oh boy, it's a little bit foggy now. It's been quite a few years since I wrote this book, <laughs> I got to <laughs> tell you. But um, I mean, I know that they recorded a couple of albums at one time and there was a sort of also this idea of a, of a leveling up um, sort of process, you know, um, do the sub pop single, do the SST, then go on to the major label. Um, so that that might have had something to do behind it. I, I forget the exact machinations behind it, and I apologize for that. Yeah, no, no worries. I mean, the, the basic story is that you know Susan Silver cut a deal with A and M Records, and they encouraged them to put out an album on SST before they put out an album on. A&M. And the thing that's interesting to me in retrospect is that if if you were, were doing it with perfect hindsight, they would have done it with Sub Pop. And, and, but nobody knew that Sub Pop was going to become what it became at that point, even though it was already bubbling under. And they had the single of the month club. And there's a great anecdote in the book. And I can't remember who actually says it, but they're talking, you know, it's a, it's a touring punk band and they, and they, are saying, I think it was the Posies maybe, and they, they play some place in Kansas City and they stay with some punk kids in the punk house and there's the sub-pop single of the month on the turntable. And mm-hmm. then they go to Oklahoma City and same thing. They go to Lubbock, Texas, same thing. Like Sub-pop marketed itself really brilliantly with the subscription single of the month club, which also financed the label, which was a totally financial shoestring. And so... Kids like me were sending him $35 for a year's worth of singles in good faith, and the, the singles were delivered, but Sub Pop at the time you know, was totally hand-to-mouth. And, and it's just amazing in retrospect that they were able to get bands like Sonic Youth and get not really national distribution, but get their records into the hands of kids all over the country. Um, just really clever. But let's go ahead and hear Green River, Swallow My Cry. Green River Swallow My Pride, which is uh, with Mark Arm and Gossard and Ament that later go on to Mother Love Bone and Pearl Jam. So pretty classic slice of grunge there. And going back and listening to all these uh, bands, in some cases the first time in many years, I feel like Green River really holds up better than I remember them at the time. Yeah, yeah, you think so? Um, I just wanted to go back with what we were talking about, Sub Pop, though. Uh, one of the main, main things, and I think what probably discouraged uh Soundgarden from staying on Sub Pop is that they were constantly on the verge of going broke. Um so I mean they, they were basically doing shifty things. Uh you know, paying Peter to what what is the expression? Paying Paul to pay Peter? Uh, uh robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's <laughs> robbing Peter to pay Paul. Exactly. Yeah. Um and um they were uh, you know, if you worked for Sub Pop back in the day, as soon as you got your check, you'd run down to the cash checking place, try to be first, so that your <laughs> check wouldn't bounce. So they were they were really financial hard straits. I mean, they they came close to death so many times. And I think that really, um, in in some ways, I mean, uh, sent some bands packing. And the, and and the Susan Silver around this time 
gets involved with a band called Alice in Chains, which comes from a whole different subset of the Seattle scene. They came from the suburban metal scene. Tell us a little bit about how that differed from the downtown punk scene. Uh, I mean, it it differed as much as you can imagine. I mean, these these were the guys with the teased out hair and the bullet belts and and things like that. And I mean, if you listen to early Alice in Chains, it's uh, it's you know, it's 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 kind of hair metal. It is hair metal, and you know, it's somewhat offensive hair metal at that. <laughs> so um, you know, then then they get in with uh, you know with bands like uh mother love bone i think andy wood was a good bridge between those two bands as as far as the social connector and you know they begin adapting some of the the you know the drop d tuning and things of that nature so that you know they definitely cross-pollinated um you know allison chains of course by the the pure strains of uh seattle grunge and punk were accused of being sellouts and you know uh kind of jumping on the grunge bandwagon but uh you know whether that's true or not obviously they were influenced but uh i mean some of those early alice and james albums are just you know fantastic uh you know dirt in particular so you know their their beginnings if you look them up on youtube if, if you ever get a chance the, the beginnings are a little embarrassing but uh they really did turn into something yeah, it's very similar to Pantera before they turned heavy, like the Pantera exactly. uh, uh, hair metal band. But, you know, in the book you bring out, you know, the, they're sharing a rehearsal space with Catbutt, and, um, which was a, a band on the punk side of the scene, and, and getting to know the guys in Mother Lobo and Soundgarden, and it was pretty organic, really. I mean, they, they have a perfectly good claim to being, you know, they weren't you men back in the day, or they weren't you know, as go back as far in the grunge scene as Soundgarden or the Melvins, but they go back to 87, 88, uh, 89, associating with those bands and, and picked up the sound pretty organically. So, but then they, they signed, I can't remember which label they were on, but they signed with a major label and really were kind of the first band out of the gate to make a national impact. They toured with that uh, Slayer, Anthrax, Megadeth, uh, Speed Metal, you know, Dream Tour, and I remember them making a big impression on my metalhead friends at the time. And, and uh, the Man in the Box video broke through on MTV. I think it was a top 40 single, maybe, lower rates of top 40. So, But at the same time, they were not marketed yet as part of a scene. They were just this sort of unique, heavy metal band, but, but heavy and, and different from the dominant heavy metal bands at the time, which was totally hair metal other than Guns N' Roses. And so in, in retrospect, it's easy to look back and say, oh, this was sub pop and, and the Seattle scene and it was grunge and it was codified. But really, until Nirvana's Nevermind breakthrough, Smells Like Teen Spirit blows up on MTV, there really wasn't a feeling that this was the scene in the country. I mean, it's just part of things bubbling up. Like you said, Jane's Addiction was getting big. The Lollapalooza tour came along. The Butthole Surfers were playing, you know, big arenas and had the legendary, I think it was a $16,000 guarantee you had to pay to get the Butthole Surfers to play. So, you know, and hip hop's breaking through and you had speed metal, you know, alternative metal breaking through. So it wasn't just this sort of monolithic, there was nothing but hair metal and then grunge came along and killed it. Like we tend to see in retrospect, it was actually a pretty variegated scene, but it's coming together and coalescing. And let's talk a little bit about Nirvana. I mean, they were originally um, the Melvin's little brother band before they were Mudhoney's little brother band. I mean, they both come from this tiny town, Aberdeen, Washington. And 
they make their way first to Olympia and then to Seattle, and they record their Bleach album with Jack and Dino for six hundred dollars. Tell us a little bit about that and how that ended up hurting Jack and Dino's career in the end. Well, um, I mean that's that's a real, you know, obviously a very famous story because they they put <laughs> the the price of the the recording and and in, in the uh, album Jack and it ended up the money ended up being paid by Jason Everman, who is very uh, briefly their second guitarist. Uh, they they still owe that money to Jason Everman actually, but I don't think he's <laughs> ever ever going to get it back. Um, and he seems okay with it, but. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, it, it, it for Jack and Dino, who who produced all those early sub pop bands and became sort of uh, associated with with that whole sub pop scene. I mean, it said it hurt his career, especially when when grunge ultimately collapsed in the mid '90s. You know, he was left like holding the bag like every you know i think he says the train had left town and and or the circus had left town and and uh you know here he was and he had to go down to like south america and do bands down there for a while so um you know he's still very much a working producer so he, he recovered but um and i think obviously you know everyone wants to work with somebody who, who worked with Nirvana. So that, that can only help. But at the same time, you know, there was a kind of a, a feeling for that, uh, you know, probably in the late nineties where, you know, he was persona non grata. And, and brought up Jason Everman, who had the sort of dubious distinction of, of being the Pete best of the grunge scene, not once, but twice he's in Nirvana for, what one tour a few months he's credited on the bleach album but he didn't actually play on it and then soundgarden's original bassist hero yamamoto quits and everman steps into the soundgarden breach does some touring with them and then gets fired again ultimately becoming a special forces operative traveling all over the world in iraq and afghanistan uh killing people that i think there was a new york times story but i first read about it in your book i mean how was when you talked to Everman? I mean, did you feel like he was at peace with the way that all played out, or was he embittered? Um, I think he was. Uh, it was hard hard to tell. He was a pretty intense guy. <laughs> I met him out. He actually, I live in New York, and he actually uh, lived in uh, New York at least at the time. And we met up at a bar. He was a pretty intense guy. I never really got a good feel for him but uh, i think he still had some some maybe resentments about that band time and um uh but you know i think he said he was kind of, i mean he had gone on to as you said do the special forces and things like that so yeah and he was i think studying philosophy at columbia i want to say so you know he, he's had definitely a very much a, a second act or third act depending on how you count and uh, you know he seemed relatively at peace about it. There's a, they're actually turning that New York Times article into a movie, which will be coming out. Uh, I think is in the works at this point. Well, that, that will be interesting to see, uh, and I'll be curious to see how much they bring up the the grunge element in that movie and how it's treated by Hollywood. That ought to be worth a hoot. But let's hear um, a little bit of Mother Love Bone. This is Stargazer from the Shine EP. Crazy, I'm the boss. 
that was Mother Lovebone's Stargazer. And Mother Lovebone, you know, Andy Wood died before they even released the first album, Apple. But because of the explosion of the grunge scene and because Chris Gornell, his former roommate, wrote a whole album's worth of songs in tribute to Andy, they put that out at, at, on a major label, but nothing really happened with it. But Eddie Vedder had been just then being recruited into what became Pearl Jam, and, and he jumped in and recorded some vocals on that. And retroactively, Temple of the Dog, the tribute album, becomes a big hit. And then Mother Lovebone actually that album ultimately goes platinum. And if you look at their videos on YouTube, you know, they've got multiple videos with over a million listens. So it seems like Andy Wood actually did reach an audience in the end. Oh, he, he certainly did. But I mean, he's still basically a cult figure. I don't think uh, the average man on the street knows who Andy Wood is. No, definitely uh, not. So, <laughs> so I mean, he, he definitely had uh, an influence in it. anyone who's a grunge fan certainly knows all about Andy Wood and the legend of Andy Wood and Andy Wood certainly as you mentioned would be you know going to these as you said little shithole clubs and be like singing to the uh, what <laughs> basically imaginary rafters saying hello Seattle things of that nature so he was basically he was uh, he was a, a stadium rocker who was was just happened to be playing these little shitty punk clubs uh, and another band, though, that never did reach a mass audience, although they were a big part of the sub-pop scene early on and, and had a big impact in the underground, you know, had a, a first of the Seattle bands to have an album produced by Steve Albini, and this was Tad. Tell us a little bit about Tad Doyle and his band and, and the series of, of fuck-ups, really, for any lack of a better term, that, that, that ultimately destroyed that group. Yeah, and they were also... Uh amongst I, I believe the first sub-pop band to you know have butch vig produce one of their albums no, which yeah, uh correct obvi obviously butch vig later went on to produce nevermind so and we know what where that happened what happened with that so um yeah i mean tad uh, as the the members of it would probably tell you were a cursed band um they were led by tad doyle was like who was like a 300 or 400 pound they they billed him as an ex you know former butcher from idaho i mean um he, he was this you know basically larger than life presence but actually quite a gentle kind guy but they they sub pop and its wisdom marketed them as rednecks and freaks which which was great at first for them but as i said later sort of boxed them in you know there was this view that they were crazy madmen from the backwoods so um <clears throat> that i mean it, what was good at first kind of uh ultimately became a drag but you know they, they had <laughs> quite a few missteps i mean one of one of them was was, was using as an album cover uh, a picture that they had found um in a uh thrift store in, a, in an album a thrift store and, and and it was for the album eight way santa and it's kind of this uh i mean it was made to look like a psychedelic sort of scene with a um the the album cover is this this guy with what sort of I think uh, uh, one of the members compared him to looking like a member of Nazareth like a guy with a mustache and like Hesher hair and he's and he's putting his hand he has a woman he's holding a woman and he's he's putting her hand on her breast um, covered breast but 
breasts nonetheless. And you know, made tube it. top. <laughs> tube top, yes, exactly. Um, it's very, very I, I guess the, the aesthetic, what you would say, is very white trash. And, um, you know, there's sort of this psychedelic uh, tapestry in the background. And it, it it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a wild-looking cover. But they didn't get, you know, they just got this photo out of a... a uh, you know, out of the thrift store, so they didn't know the the provenance of it. And against some better advice, they put it on the on the uh, cover of the album. And then later on, they find out that the the woman in the picture, she's now like a, apparently, and this is according to legend, the born again Christian. So uh, the you know the couple threatens to sue Tad for using this. Uh, this image so they have to pull it and this is right you know right as you know they're building up hype and uh, you know that that really destroys a lot of their momentum which is even further destroyed when they they do a song from that album Jack Pepsi um, which is about drunk driving Uh, they have the they did the tad logo up like the Pepsi logo and apparently according again according to legend somebody within uh, a disgruntled sub pop or former sub pop employee uh threatened to go to pepsi with this information that there was this copyright violation if um it, you know if if they uh be, if they put out the single so that they had to pull that single also from the shelf so basically that was like two strikes against them and and this was supposed to be their big album this is the one that was produced by butch vig and um you know, then they that later on in, in their career, they were on a major label, and they put out a, a poster with uh, with uh, Bill Clinton smoking a joint, saying, yeah, "This is heavy shit." Again, <laughs> a lot of this, is, uh, according to legend, but <laughs> because it's not I, not not totally reliable, but but apparently that that got them in trouble too. That that caused them to get dropped by their label because you know it was very controversial putting the president smoking a doobie on a poster whether that was the actual reason they got jumped dropped from their major label and it didn't have anything to do with sales or or things like that we can't know but they basically had terrible judgment (laughs) and terrible luck when it came to uh doing art on their albums and posters so um and a lot of people were like they they could have been big um and you know they could have obviously they were super associated with nirvana they toured with them through europe uh they were friends with the band uh kirk cobain famously uh tad doyle the singer of of tad had like gastrointestinal issues and kirk cobain famously would hold the bucket as tad vomited into it on the side of the road so they were pretty close and um you know they could they could have probably made a lot more ridden the hype a lot better had their albums not kept getting pulled and they were also basically blocked from mtv because mtv was whitest they didn't they didn't like tad doyle being fat and they wouldn't put a fat guy on mtv and so uh you know tad's to me like sort of the epitome of a band that when i was first hearing about the sub pop scene i mean it was it was mud honey it was tad then nirvana you're also hearing about soundgarden and other bands but but when they make the next step to the major labels and mass consciousness tad was definitely left behind and mud honey in a way was left behind and and they were initially the flagship band of the seattle scene like we talked about they were on the cover of melody maker and covered by the new musical express but steve turner's reticence kind of held them back steve turner was perennially threatening to go back to school and breaking up the band 
I don't know if you, I would call him the punk rock conscience of it, but he was definitely um, reticent about fame and, and moving on. I think there was this, probably, I think he admitted there was probably a certain fear on his part of success, um, but he was definitely in that, uh, you know, let's keep it, keep it simple, keep it small sort of uh, vein. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a major uh major point of frustration for some of the other members of the band, for sure. And I remember Mudhoney, uh, you know, it took a while. I was in Austin, Texas at the time, and, and I remember Nirvana booked a show and then canceled the tour before they got here off the Bleach album, and then Mudhoney uh, canceled a couple times and finally made it here right before um, the whole thing blew up. But I remember Mudhoney had just cut their hair, and that was another sort of self-sabotage move that, you know, this is a band like – their hair and their necklaces were on the iconic uh, Super Fuzz Big Muff EP cover, and they just sort of pulled back. And in retrospect, it seems like a pretty wise move. I mean, you're not hearing about, even though Mark Arm struggled with heroin addiction for years and years, you're you're not going to any funerals for anybody in Mud Honey, uh, which you know, that is true. That is true. <laughs> but but there. Yeah, go Clay ahead. Mark Arm came close a couple of times, apparently, but uh, due to the aforementioned heroin. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely keeping it small, pulling back. I mean, later on, Pearl Jam definitely uh, had that uh, philosophy. I mean, that's why they're still around today. They, you know, that first album, Ten, they had the option of, of pursuing one more single, that song, Black. Uh, which would have probably been a huge hit, but they, they just didn't want to continue. And then they stopped making videos and, you know, they, they pulled back. Whereas a band like Nirvana, um, you know, just kept even in their deteriorating stage, just kept making videos, kept playing shows, kept doing the whole, uh, circuit. So, uh, I mean, there, there's a reason that Pearl Jam still exists today. And, and Nirvana does, but let's hear Mud Honey's Touch Me, I'm Sick. Mudhoney's Touch Me, I'm Sick, but they put out an album right around this time called Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge that actually saved Sub Pop, at least for a little while. That, and that album sold 100,000 copies. That was a big deal at the time for an indie label. Yeah, yeah. As I said earlier, they were, uh, Sub Pop was constantly on the brink of uh, turning out the lights, you know, not being able to pay the electricity bill, almost shut down to shift around funds. I'm sure all sorts of shay shenanigans went on with the with the money. Um, but uh, yeah, Mudhoney were the were the band that, that uh, saved Sub Pop. Years later, it would be the Shins. Uh, you know, when they when they had their big hit with the uh, Gold, Gold, uh, Garden State soundtrack, they would save Sub Pop. Um, <laughs> so there, there's been a kind of a little history of, of bands saving Sub Pop. Uh, and, of course, Sub Pop is still around today. So, yeah. so they, there's there's uh, you know it worked. <laughs> and but in between Mud Honey and the Shins, they get saved again through no fault of their own because Chris Novoselic of Nirvana 
insisted on signing a contract with Sub Pop, and that ended up right, entitling right. Sub Pop to a points on Nevermind. Yeah, yeah, that, that they were obviously a, a huge saver as well. And then you know, um, Warner buys uh, about half of Sub Pop, so you know, uh, Sub Pop has had many, many lives and many, many benefactors. So uh, they've been incredibly lucky um, in in some regards, even though they were financially mismanaged. So uh, yeah, I guess I have to thank all those bands. And and we talked a little bit about Pearl Jam, but let's talk about the way they came together. Eddie Vedder was not from Seattle. How did he get connected with uh, Gossard and Ament, who were recovering from the implosion of Mother Love Bone after Andy Wood's death? How did they hook up with a singer from San Diego? Yeah, um, Eddie Vedder knew uh, Jack Irons, who was in the Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, and he was friends with those guys, and... Uh, there was a tape passed along and, uh, you know, uh, Eddie Vedder recorded vocals of that. And, uh, yeah, he came up one weekend and, and, uh, they just, they just knew they had their guy. And, and they, they put out the 10 album and it's not an immediate hit. And it's not until Nirvana's Nevermind blows up that Pearl Jam kind of gets pulled along in their wake Although, as we've talked about on the show before, Pearl Jam was actually gaining on Nirvana and maybe even passing them up by the time Kurt Cobain died. I mean, Pearl Jam had multiple hits off that first album, and, and Nirvana also had multiple hits off their first album, but their second album kind of stiffed, whereas Pearl Jam's, um, I mean, relatively speaking, kind of stiffed, but Pearl Jam's <laughs> second album, uh, you know, blew the doors off, even though Eddie Vedder's already putting the brakes on. And one thing, you got a quote in there from Buzz Osborne, uh, who had been Kurt Cobain's mentor, in a way, early on, but uh, he really bashes Nirvana and, and Courtney Love, Kurt Cobain's wife in particular, but he has this quote in here. Um, they'd become exactly what I had always tried to avoid. This is way before they got popular. That's what people don't get. They lined up for this shit. They put themselves in line to be aligned with horrible pe people. I blamed them for the whole thing. They got in line to be involved with horrible management, horrible booking agents, horrible roadies, horrible everything. They didn't need to do it, but they did it. And that sort of sums up, like, there's something... I feel like Kurt Cobain's conflict that he viewed being successful as selling out. But, you know, if you read his diaries, he clearly under, he, he mapped out their whole career plan years in advance. So on the one hand, he's this very shrewd, very ambitious, you know, and gifted and talented artist who wants to reach a mass audience. But at the same time, he's imbibed this punk rock ideology that it's wrong to sell out. And it sort of seems like, since he viewed what he was doing as wrong, he just went whole hog and did it as wrong as he possibly could. Yeah, I mean, there was certainly, there was certainly this this uh, tension between wanting to remain true to punk rock values and and then just wanting to be on MTV all the time. And you know, I, I think he <laughs> he straddled that line pretty well. He was and definitely gave a. Uh, at least the uh, appearance of being the, the tortured artist and the, the, the pure to his art. But, you know, there was a story, and I, I don't remember if it's actually in, in my book or not, but Danny Goldberg, uh, his manager, tells about uh, Kurt Cobain watching MTV and counting 
the number of times Nirvana's video would play versus the number of times Pearl Jam's video would play, and then complaining if you know Nirvana's wasn't played enough. So he definitely, I mean, he was he he definitely wanted fame, um, but it wasn't cool to say you wanted fame at that point. So uh, you know, he wrote that line pretty well, I would say. Yeah, and then you know, of course, heroin addiction was uh, another big part of his undoing. And the relationship with Courtney Love, which clearly they they bonded. I mean, that's a really it's a true love story. It's right up there with Sid and Nancy and John and Yoko and all the other great rock and roll tragic comedies of romance. But you know, Courtney Love is such a divisive figure in the scene. Mark Arm has several stories about her, you know, and 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 talks about Odine in a hotel room with with Kurt and Courtney with Francis Bean. Um, sitting there in the in the room and but he he said he didn't really give up on courtney love until she started putting out these revisionist stories about how she had met cobain you know two or three years before she actually did what's your take on courtney love at this point uh well i'm i'm uh, eternally grateful to her for speaking with me for the book so uh um which was you know gives it obviously uh uh, a good deal of, uh, of uh, you know, her special Courtney colorfulness. Um, you know, she, you know, she yelled at me a little bit during her interviews and, and was very, uh, <laughs> although what, what I consider yelling for, for Courtney Love is probably just her, you know, regular speaking tone. But, um, you know, she, she, she's, you know, she's everything that, uh, everything that uh, has been advertised very, super smart super intelligent super witty um you know very but you know she can turn on a dime on you so um uh, you know my take on her is i mean I, I i see both sides there are people who who are immense courtney love fans and then there are people i mean most of the people i spoke in my book hated her hated her i mean buzz osborne in particular you know horrible things to say about her in my book so um you know i guess she was good sport in talking to me i mean she's she's become lately she seems to have become a little bit more respectable and and i mean there's been some years where you know she's been on and off drugs where she's been uh less predictable shall we say but right now she seems to be and I, I can only tell by following her on social media. She seems to be in a much better place, much calmer, much uh, much uh, better balanced. Maybe getting a little peace and sanity in her life. Um, and so let's hear Nirvana's Francis Farmer will have her revenge on Seattle. Yes, I'm relieving. Now that you're leaving, soon as you can It's so relaxing, hear that you're resting, never against you. It's so soothing, know that you sue me, so I'm And that was uh, Kurt Cobain's ode to Frances Farmer, the legendary Hollywood actress who was lobotomized and destroyed uh, as chronicled in a 1980s movie. And uh, somebody he identified with, and 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 uh, you know the the thing about this book is it's it's a great read, and and 
Chronicles an important musical scene, but after a while, you know, up to the point of Andy Wood's death, it's really a fun read. Then Andy Wood dies, and and but 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 the momentum is still going on. But then after a while, you know, you get Kurt Cobain's death, and then Lane Staney's uh, addiction issues, and ultimately his death, and then uh, Mia Zapata of the Gits is is raped and murdered. Was did you feel like you were? imbibing the the negativity and the heaviness of of seattle in the grunge scene did you feel haunted by all these ghosts while you were writing this book uh i did especially when i would have like interview someone late at night and you know maybe they were a heroin user or something and we went through their sort of history it was like hard to get to sleep at night it was i mean it was haunting in its own way and uh it definitely has its effect on you listening to all these stories about especially heroin and the devastation it caused i mean i didn't really want to talk about mia zapata's rape and murder um you know but it seemed like an essential part of, of the story because it affected seattle profoundly there was a um you know she was the singer of the gets and she was found raped and murdered and nobody knew who did it and there was suspicion within the community, you know, anybody could have uh, possibly done it, somebody she knew, perhaps. So, I mean, it turned out to be some total, totally random guy who was just in town briefly. They found him via uh, DNA evidence like a decade later. But, um, you know, it really tore the scene apart and uh, it, it kind of united the scene a little bit. I mean, you know, Nirvana and Tad and some other bands did, you know, a fundraiser for for uh, to to help uh, the case and and uh, yeah, it was just uh, there was a lot of darkness to it and uh, you know I, I I tried to balance the darkness out with the light, but uh, you know it, it can't help but get to you after a while. And of all the negative forces, we've you know talked about heroin a lot, and we've talked about seasonal affective disorder without using that term with Seattle. But how much do you think that the whole fame and money and an uneven distribution of said fame and money, how negative was that on the scene and how much did that destroy people's lives? Um, well, I mean, it was, it was certainly, yes, it was definitely a, uh, not very even distribution of money. And there, there were people who were becoming millionaires, but there were only, I mean, you could probably count them on, two hands uh maybe three uh the number of people who actually got super super rich from this but and there were still years after when i was talking to these people 20 or so 30 years after there were still people who felt resentment about that you know <laughs> a lot of these people have day jobs now and they, you know they they're you know uh, they look back on these days fondly, but uh, I'm sure they would have liked to have gotten super rich. Um, although, obviously, you know, some people who got super rich ended up dying. So there is a bit of a trade-off there in some in some cases. But uh, you know, and getting dropped by your label is is has to be uh, you know a real downer, for lack of a better word. But um, yeah, there were, there was, there still seemed to be some simmering resentments, especially at bands like Candlebox, who were actually a Seattle band, but were were widely you know rumored to have come from L.A. or something. And they were a later band, and they were seen as cashing in on the scene. So there were a lot of people still had a chip on their shoulder about Candlebox, for instance. 
Yeah, and Candlebox, uh, and I was glad you covered them because it was an important part of the story, and I think they had a legit claim. You know, they're from Seattle. Uh, uh, Kevin, the main guy in Candlebox, had been had known you know Mark Arm and various people from the time he was a very young kid, and you know it wasn't really any fault of their own that they became the flavor of the month on MTV for a while. And then have this spectacular downfall where, you know, it became a music biz expression, as you say, to to that band's candle boxing, meaning that that band is circling the drain and, and they're done for, even though they don't know it yet, you know. And so that's a pretty depressing story. But I have to say that the Lane Staley story of Alice in Chains is the saddest and most depressing thing. I mean, I remember when he died in 2002 and his body had been in his house for over a week without anybody finding it. And then, you know, you talk about the the bandits at the Grammys and Lane didn't even rate, uh, you know, a slide in the photo slideshow of people who had passed away that year. And it really, especially around the time of 2002, it just really felt like grunge was something culturally we could not get a far away from, you know, that we totally disavowed grunge and and allison chains in particular bore the brunt of that just being beneath contempt in a way i mean you didn't see uh you know there weren't big tribute articles there wasn't a new york times obituary but this was a very popular band and a good band i mean tell us a little bit about that story and and how it played out yeah i mean i think one of one of the reasons that uh lane staley's death wasn't as impactful on the public consciousness as it might've been, um, was a, that, uh, he, he had been basically a ghost for all these years. You know, he had basically disappeared from public consciousness. He, he went into, you know, he holed up in his uh, apartment building and did heroin. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it took a couple of weeks for them even to realize he was, you know, he was dead because he was so, so isolated. It just was this, apparently he would, you know, just be in his, his, uh, apartment doing heroin and playing video games and maybe seeing the occasional visitor, probably a dealer. And, and that was it. It was just a really sad, sad ending and it wasn't like somebody like Kurt Cobain where he he basically went out on top this was years and years later um you know time had moved on and then after you write the book just last year Chris Cornell kills himself how did you feel about that was that just like that the was, last kick in the teeth yeah that, that was really gutting and really surprising um you know uh uh, I I remember that day. I guess it was a couple of years ago now. You know, just I, I wasn't feeling very well, and I and I woke up late, and my you know phone was was <laughs> had all these messages and emails and stuff, and and it was just like kind of amazing because you know he 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 had famously you know he was he. He started off, you know, as a young person doing drugs and alcohol, and then he was a famous kind of teetotaler for a while. Then later in life, around you know his forties, he got back into it, and then he seemed to be clean again. So, um, yeah, it was just it was just a total shocker. Uh, not something even given the darkness of of his songs and perhaps his persona. In some cases, it just didn't seem like 
seemed like he had escaped that curse. Um, so it was a real, real surprise when that happened. And then I, um, you know, did a billboard, had me do a story about, uh, you know, the early years. So I reconnected with a lot of people I had spoken to for the book. And they, you know, they told me stories about Chris in the early years. So that was, that was kind of like pulled me back into the whole world again after years, uh, being out of it so that was kind of strange as well it was a a very intense experience yeah and hard and i think you know as a gen xer myself who once you know had fantasies of being a rock star it feels like generationally we were brought up just immersed in rock and roll culture you know even if you were a punk rocker or tried to oppose it there was really no escape from it and even you know people like steve turner who resisted the rock stardom or Eddie Vedder who achieved rock stardom and then pulled back, there really was no escape. But at the end of the day, it really seems like sex, drugs and rock and roll is a dead end. And everything our moms and dads told us was right. You know, that this leads nowhere good, but there for a minute, you know, uh, we really enjoyed rocking out. (laughs) Do you have final thoughts on it? Like what's your, what's your take on the net plus and minus of grunge? Do you feel like, this is just a bunch of wastes of lives or this is just how life goes and people achieve things and express and, and then life ends. <laughs> oh, we're, ending it, we're ending it on a real, uh, up and over. Um, to avoid with this topic. I mean, you know, like the, 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 there was the excitement of the whole, we won moment. I can't remember who said it in the New York times or whatever, but you know, when, when smells like teen spirit broke, that we had won, that the, there was a cultural change, that the, the hair metal people were gone, and, and you know, this our generation would express itself in a free way. And we did for a while, but, you know, death after death after death, like, yeah, I mean, do you view it as a, a net plus or net negative? What's your take on it at this point, Mark? Well, I guess uh, you can look at it uh, on the, the plus side. We, we, we still have all the music. I mean, not a, I mean, you know, obviously quite a few prominent people died, uh, you know, the Kurtz and the Lanes and Andy Woods and, and, and people of that nature, but, and obviously most recently Chris Cornell, but, you know, so many people are, you know, still alive. Uh, they may have desk jobs now, but, uh, which isn't uh, probably the dream, but, but there are also a lot of bands out there. I mean, Mud Honey is still around. Um, Allison Chains is still around. They have a new singer. Melvins are still around. Candlebox is still around. Um, you know, and L7 reformed. Uh, there are bands that, you know, they're, they're still doing it. You know, grunge isn't dead by any stretch of the imagination. And they're still young, young fans. I mean, I, you know, when I was writing this book or afterwards, I was, you know, I, I was on Tumblr a lot. I had a Tumblr for the book. It's connecting with a lot of young fans who weren't there the first time around who who really look back on that era um, in a, a positive way, really look back and wish they had been alive back then. So I think, I think the spirit lives on, uh, even though some of the progenitors of it don't. And that's a good way to wrap up. Mark Arm, thanks so much for coming on the show. The book is Everybody Loves Our Town, An Oral History of Grunge, which I I think it's a classic, classic rock and roll book. So thanks so much for putting it together. I know it was a ton of work. It, it really was. It really was. But thank you so much for having me, Nate. I appreciate it. And um, take care. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark.
Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Come back next week when Ted Joya returns to discuss his latest book, Music, A Subversive History. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Everybody Loves Our Town, an oral history of grunge, is published by Three Rivers Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.